I want to invite you to imagine the following scenario with me, if you would. And I need to preface this by saying that I intend no political partisanship by what I'm going to say, nor am I making a religious prophecy of any kind. But let me just encourage you to imagine that by the next time the presidential elections roll around, our current president has rather surprisingly decided he is not going to run for re-election. And in the sudden and surprising wake of this particular decision, Franklin Graham, the son of the famous evangelist, steps into the fray and, and gathers a tremendous amount of national attention and interest because he pledges to return America to its moral roots, to its spiritual values, and to prepare us for the return of Jesus. And Graham is elected in a, in a shocking outcome, he wins by a slim victory and enters the Oval Office. Then in April of the following year, the ultimate story breaks on every single news outlet. Jesus actually returns. He walks right down Pennsylvania Avenue. He stops in front of the White House. He delivers a magnificent address to throngs of cheering people. And at a private dinner just three days before Easter, Christ announces the dawn of a whole new era in human history. Are you with me so far? Now, what would you expect President Graham's reaction to be in this moment? Delight, right? Delight. But what if Graham, upon hearing of the arrival of Jesus, instead orders the Secret Service to go and arrest him? And then what if he then presides over a secret midnight meeting of the Supreme Court at which Jesus is tried and sentenced for sedition and suppose he then sends Christ to die by lethal injection the following day, would that scenario shock you? Would it surprise you? Wouldn't you wonder why Graham, of all people, would do such a thing? And if that fictitious story might amaze you, then what of the real article? What of what actually did happen along very similar lines long ago? After all, if, you, if there was somebody who you think should have been the first one to recognize the Son of God when he walked uh, through the streets of his city and into his presence and, and, and came up and actually shook his hand... It was certainly Caiaphas, the leader of the elite class of temple priests known as the Sadducees. The very term Sadducee tells us something about the man because the term derives its name uh, from the high priest of Israel during the time of King Solomon, and it literally means righteous man. It means man or person in alignment with God. Someone who's walking with God. 
Unlike the Pharisees who prized the rabbinical interpretations of the Hebrew scriptures as highly as they prized the Bible itself, the Sadducees, on the other hand, prided themselves as righteous guardians of a conservative biblical interpretation. I mean, these people studied the scriptures daily. They knew by heart every single one of the biblical prophecies about the coming Messiah. And what was true of most fat Sadducees had to have been doubly true of Caiaphas himself, the leader of the Sadducees. You see, Caiaphas was no ordinary Sadducee. He was really the best and the very brightest of these people. His doctorate in religious affairs had helped him to earn the office of high priest of not just any synagogue, but of the great temple at Jerusalem. And his political acumen and finesse also gave him, had won for him the dual role as the chairman of the Sanhedrin, the political ruling council of that day. We are talking about a superstar in terms of religion and politics in the person of, of Caiaphas. And it is precisely because he was so very, very committed to the, the way of Judaism and so intellectually perceptive that his response to Jesus creates such a puzzle. I mean, it's one of the real mysteries of the Easter story. How do we explain the fact that that when the Messiah, for whom Caiaphas, of all people, longed and prepared, when that Messiah finally walked through the door, rather than proclaiming him Lord of all, Caiaphas submits him to this secret trial, declares him a blaspheming heretic, and then has him spat upon, beaten upon, and pushes him towards crucifixion. How does this happen? How did this happen? And maybe more personally... If Caiaphas, of all people, could not recognize the presence of God, the Savior of the world, standing right in front of him, speaking to him, calling out to him, if Caiaphas couldn't do it, then how are you and I going to be sure we're attentive to the presence of God? I think of a story of a friend of mine who told me about a secret visit to the city of Chicago made by our current pope some time ago that created quite a stir that was not widely covered at the particular time. Apparently his holiness uh, convinced the limousine driver that he would actually like to get behind the wheel. Doesn't get to drive very much since becoming pope and so he got behind the wheel. The limo driver got into the back seat and the pope began to drive and everything was going just great until the pope it turned out had a bit of a lead foot and he got pulled over by one of Chicago's finest. The officer came up to the window the Pope rolled down the window, one glance into the limousine, told the police officer he had a very, very unusual and embarrassing situation on his hands. And so he went back to his car and radioed back to headquarters. And he got the captain on the line and he said, I've just pulled over a VIP and I'm not sure what to do. Well, who is it? His superior asked. It's somebody really big, sir, answered the cop. Is it the mayor? 
asked the captain. No, 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 he's even bigger than that. Is it the governor, inquired his captain. No, sir, he's even more important than that. It's the president, even higher, said the police officer. Well, then who in the world could it be, cried the captain. Well, sir, the officer stammered, I'll give you a hint. His chauffeur is the pope. So many an error over time has been made because of mistaken identity. And I suppose maybe it's possible that even a very sincere and very deeply intelligent and devout individual might misidentify the presence of God himself because he didn't fit his picture of him. Because his image of God maybe was too small. For Caiaphas, it had to have seemed inconceivable that the long-awaited Messiah was actually standing in front of him that particular night. Because when news had first spread across the land that there was this remarkable rabbi moving through the villages and towns of Galilee and then down into Judea, that he was speaking with this amazing authority and doing these wonders in the name of God, it had to have at least occurred to the high priest to be curious about this. He had to have been filled with the same kind of question that came to the lips of the followers of John the Baptist when they asked, are you the one? Are you the one that we've been waiting for? And yet as time went on, familiarity, I think, with the actual Jesus only bred contempt in the heart of the Reverend Dr. Caiaphas. And if there had been hope at the beginning for Caiaphas... I can only speculate that it began to morph for him. It began to change over time until it became this kind of bitter disappointment. You see, as I said before, the Sadducees were convinced that they knew exactly what the Messiah would be like. That they, that they knew his M.O. And this Jesus did not, over time, fit the mold. As the silent prisoner was dragged in before the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas may have mused, well, don't the scriptures clearly say that the anointed one, the Christ, will be the successor to the majestic throne of David? Who is this hick from the boondocks of Nazareth? He can't be the one. Do you think it ever occurred to Caiaphas that the very same God who once upon a time chose a mere shepherd's boy, the seventh in the line of sons, to become the king of Israel might be doing it again, might be once again picking someone no one else would choose to demonstrate the all-surpassing power that lies in him. Did it ever cross Caiaphas's mind, do you suppose? And as Christ's eyes blazed strength in the face of the questions that Caiaphas was asking in front of this stacked jury, 
Caiaphas might have thought quite self-righteously to himself, don't the scriptures promise that the Messiah will establish the law of God upon this earth? Why this impudent wag doesn't even have the peasant piety to observe the Sabbath or to reverence the ordained priests of Israel? You could understand why he would feel these things. But did it ever cross the high priest's mind that he might be standing in the presence of the lawgiver himself? That the law of God might be larger than he even imagined and that God's truth might not be so conveniently boxed and owned by a particular religious people. And then as... The trumped-up witnesses quote Christ's apocryphal words a few days beforehand. Uh, Caiaphas grumbles angrily, perhaps. Don't the sacred scriptures say that when the Messiah comes, the temple will be filled with the very glory of God who is this penniless preacher that says if the temple is destroyed, he will raise it up again in three days. Do you think it ever occurred to that learned Sadducee that Jesus was not talking about mortar and stone? But the most important temple of all, the one where God's spirit is most intent about coming to dwell, and that is the very body and spirit of a human life, which Jesus, in three days, would raise up again. I doubt any of those thoughts crossed the learned Dr. Caiaphas' mind, which is probably why he dared to ask the witness that night, and I quote, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Tell us, tell us. I grew up in the home of lawyers. My dad was a federal prosecutor. He taught me very early in life, no litigator ever asks a question he doesn't already know the answer to. The questions are just a setup for getting to the facts as the prosecutor knows them. Caiaphas knew the answer to the question. Jesus wasn't the Christ. He couldn't possibly be the Messiah. He wasn't kingly like Caiaphas thought the ultimate king would be. He wasn't pious like the God of true spirituality must be. He wasn't uh, reverent about the temple like Dr. C believed the Holy of Holies should be. And when push came to shove, Jesus wasn't even as defiantly militant as the Messiah certainly would be. And so at the very moment when the high priest of Israel might have made a decision that would start to reverse the downward slide of his people, and Israel was in a slide morally, spiritually, politically. The very hour when he might have embraced the most brilliant redefinition of majesty, piety, hope, and power ever to shine before humanity, and at the very instant when he could have joined his own personal future and that of his people to the most thundering movement of grace and truth ever to move across the face of this earth, Caiaphas turns his back on his Savior because his image of God was too small. Too small. He 
So here's the question for today. Is ours. Is our God too small? Is our conception of God actually flexible enough, large enough to embrace the God who is? The God who who moves in ways that surprise and innovate and renovate. Will we be open to even having a God like that? As J.B. Phillips suggested long ago, many of us live our entire lives relating, often unwittingly, to God in a box, to a set of prescribed images about who God is and how he acts. It's, it's what religion is, often. It's, understanding, it's understandable that we do this, of course, because without some kind of concrete focus, Uh, some kind of picture of God outside of ourselves. Spirituality will become the worship of what one theologian calls a vague oblong blur, or else it becomes the worship of ourselves. So we need a definition. We need a picture of God. But the perpetual danger that we run into is the same one that Caiaphas faced, and that is that the conceptual framework that we have chosen in order to get a handle on God, will actually obscure our vision of the infinitely larger and more dynamic God who's stretching out his hand to us. You can imagine Moses meeting God in the wilderness and saying, well, I know who God is. God is a being that that, uh, shows up in bushes and burns and speaks from them. And you can imagine that, 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 that Elijah going along would say, I know who God is. God is a, is a whisper that comes when I'm in a crack in the rock. How many different ways does God show up? How many different shocking, surprising, innovative ways does God move in just the biblical narrative? Is there a message for us in that? Is God trying to stretch us and to challenge us to tell us anything about himself. I think this is why God met us as a human being. I I think he could have presented us with a static box. He could have given us a fixed institution, a set of rituals, a set of laws that so many other religions actually do, but instead God focused his character and his will into a body. Actually, as something of a corrective when faith had been reduced to just religion. God gave us a concrete focus for our faith, but one that we would have real trouble turning into a a lifeless idol because this body that he sent and came into the world in, in, it moved around too much. It, It surprised and challenged people too much to be reduced and trapped And what Caiaphas could not understand was that in Jesus Christ, he was meeting the God who wanted, out of love, to blow out the sides of his small religious box and let in the fresh light and air of the dynamic presence of the living God. For the renewal of Caiaphas' life and his people's life and of all things. The question again is, do we understand 
that he may wish to do the very same thing for you and me. Maybe we've reduced God to the box of our conscience. Oh, I'll know God. I'll know God because I'll feel like this is the right thing. I'll sense it in my head. Maybe we've reduced him to the God of our conscience, thinking that if something feels right to us, it must be okay. For a change, however, what if we considered the possibility that Jesus says some of what we may be feeling is right isn't? Isn't right. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Or perhaps we've reduced God to the box of our father image. It's very easy to do that, and maybe even natural. And, and if we grew up with a dad that rarely approved of us, then God must be awfully disappointed and disapproving of you too. But consider the possibility that you have a father like the one Jesus talks about who is extravagantly committed to you and loves you in spite of the fact that you have failed and that you sin as I do, who is relentless in his love for you. Or maybe you've got God stuck in the temperance box. You view God as some pale spirit that basically just wants you to be moderate in everything. Go ahead and take another look today at the Lord we meet in the scriptures the one who overturns the occasional table, who changes water into wine, who weeps hot tears over dying friends and then go out and live with more passion this week than you've dared to before. Or perhaps you've shrunk God into the sound doctrine box. You think of him as infinitely concerned over whether your theology is liberal or conservative enough whether you're woke enough to the crisis on one side or the other. Maybe God is this kind of doctrine God to you. For a change, take a look at the life of Jesus. Again, look again at Jesus, his way of living, his way of loving, his way of holding tensions. And do this, do likewise as he did. Forget the labels. Or maybe you've reduced God to the, the distant director box. You know, he's this being that somehow got the whole enterprise of life going in the first place, but he's now way too busy managing other operations to be involved here, to care about you and what you're going through and the details of your life. Well, friend, consider instead the God that Jesus tells you about who knows the number of hairs upon your head. and cares for everything that is going on in your world in every moment of your life, who's actively working out his purposes, the matrix of his providence in all of the circumstances of our time. There are just so many boxes that limit our perception of God, I think. I know this is true for me. I get stuck in them all the time. We can come to view him as the God of my country or the God of my party or the God of my comfort or something else. There are actually people whose understanding of God is so small that they would walk into a religious assembly and start killing people and think God had that in mind. How crucial it is that we stay open 
searching, seeking, desiring, hungering to know more of the God who is. And in each case where the true God steps outside of the box of our conceptions and says or does something that frustrates the expectations that we associate with him, we're going to be inclined not to recognize him. Let's just confess that. We're going to be inclined to miss him. Unless we've really searched the scriptures and learned to see the stunning breadth of this God, the values and behaviors of this God, he could actually be at work all around us and might be right in front of us and speaking to us and we would be saying, oh, that, that can't be God. Caiaphas is there for all of us. So what does it take to show the Caiaphas in us that our picture of God could be too small? Will God have to tear down some temple that we've built in order to raise up a new and living one? Will he have to come all the way out from eternity and all the way down to death and rise all the way up to new life to show us how wide and deep and high is the true range of his love, his truth, his grace? Will he need to meet us in the toil and the triumph and the tribulation of this week ahead in our lives before we will begin to see him everywhere and know for sure he will never be boxed in? He can't be boxed in. He would do that, by the way, for you and me. He'd cross that distance. He'd go to those lengths. He'd show up in those ways. He would do that for you and me. He did that for you and me. And he will again. The question is, when God is there before us, calling us to build a relationship to invest a resource, to reframe an attitude that we have not considered seriously before, will we turn away like Caiaphas did? Or will we have the humility to say, yes, I will follow you, my Savior and my Lord. Please pray with me. Gracious God, great God of the scriptures, come by the wind of your Holy Spirit to blow open the boxes which obscure our even greater vision of you, the Holy One. Then enter through these open doors to be our larger love, our larger life, our larger Lord. And summon us afresh, O oh God, onto those pathways, into those places, to those relationships that further your purposes and bring glory to your name. In the name of Christ, our Savior. We pray, amen.